The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. All right, good morning. Good morning, King's Chapel. As half the church leaves, the rest of you, if you, uh, if you wouldn't mind turning with me to Romans chapter 12, and if you didn't get a chance, you could have grabbed an outline on the way in to take some notes or to draw some pictures or whatever you do to listen well. And, and this morning, we are going to continue in our, our One Another series where we've been reflecting on this one simple concept. If you haven't gotten the message yet, it's just this, the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus by the way we what? Love one another. That's right. Love one another. In other words, it's not even by the way that we love outsiders or non-believers, though that's, of course, incredibly important. But even more than that, what Jesus tells us is that if you belong to him, the way that you love one another and each other is, is actually what will be a symbol to the world that you belong to him. And so this morning, we're going to continue to consider what does this look like practically? How do we love one another in community? And there are so many one another's in scripture, and, and we've just been hitting a few of, of the key ones over the last few weeks. So last week, uh, Pastor Bill talked about serving one another. Two weeks ago, uh, Brian talked about admonishing and encouraging one another, using our words to build each other up in the body of Christ. And so today and next week, actually, we're going to be looking at something a little different. We're going to be looking at how to fight with and forgive one another within the family of God. I know there's not a verse that says, uh, fight one another, is there? But there are plenty of verses in scripture that seem to indicate that even within the family of God, believe it or not, there is conflict, isn't there? And, and so anytime I'm preparing a message uh, for Sunday, I get the privilege of experiencing these object lessons throughout the week from the Lord. So on your behalf, I've been fighting with my family and uh, learning some lessons along the way that I can share here. But honestly, beyond family, beyond our personal relationships, it is not hard to recognize that there is a lot of conflict in the world, right? If you just turn on the news for a few seconds, you can see what's unfolding in Ukraine, and it, it can be overwhelming to think about uh, all the unimaginable horrors that are going on there. And the truth is that that's very much on our radar, uh, Europe, and, and, and that is all very familiar to us, but these kinds of conflicts go on around the world all the time and have for centuries, forever, actually. From the very beginning, where Adam and Eve's children, one killed the other. Conflict has been a constant part of life since sin entered the equation. And, and the sobering reality is that that same self-interest that we see over there, that same unresolved tension, the, those same quarrels between people that are actually very much like each other, those play out in our personal lives here too. James says this in James chapter 4, verse 1 to 2. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So we see this, we see this playing out on this geopolitical scale, uh, but James isn't talking about nations here. He's using this language of war, but what he's talking about is what is taking place inside of you, inside of me regularly human to human, interpersonal conflict, brother to brother. I wonder how many of you have ever experienced conflict with your family? Anyone? Yeah? <laughs> Maybe even right now. 
And, and frankly, the family environment, while it's supposed to be our primary environment for love and affection, and it is that, it also is probably primary, your primary context for conflict and relational tension. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. So, so for the Christian, however, you need to realize that beyond your family unit, you have a much bigger family, don't you? A much bigger family than just the people that sit around at your kitchen table at home. Because the most persistent analogy in the New Testament for what the church is, it's not body, actually. It's not bride. It's family. And I challenge you to study the scriptures on this and see it. You'll see again and again the church referred to as brothers and sisters. The way they talk to each other is brother and sister, brother and sister. So when you become a Christian, you become part of a big family. And within a family, within a group of people, there are going to be all kinds of different types of people. Some that you'll get along with easily, some that you won't. Brothers and sisters, some that are older, some that are younger. Some mature, some not yet, right? Many that are different from you. And if you have brothers and sisters in your your family at home, and and you know I have many, uh, there is not always harmony in the home, is there? No. Why? Why? I mean, let's just set aside sin for a moment, although we can't, obviously. But let's consider what it is about a family that, that might stir up conflict, that might create relational tension. Like a family, Christian community is, number one, non-selective. You don't get to pick your siblings, do you? You don't get to choose who is a part of your family. And one of the amazing things about Christianity and becoming a follower of Jesus is that there are believers all over the world and even in this room that are totally different from you. And that's beautiful. But it's also challenging because it means that you have people in your family that are nothing like you, that have different preferences, different backgrounds, different maturity levels. And the challenge of the church to the church is to live in harmony with people that in some cases you would never associate with. Is there anyone in this room this morning that you would never associate with? Don't look at them, okay? We come together because we are unified by one thing. We are unified by Jesus Christ, that he has saved us, that he has made us new, and he has brought us into this this amazing, complex family together. But he is at the core of it. And it's a challenge to live in harmony with people that are very different than you. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis discusses this. He talks about this this storgy, familial love that is supposed to characterize the church. And he, he basically describes it as like cats and dogs being raised together. He says, we look around and we see people within the church and we say, that's not my sort of person. But the miracle of what God can do in community is that over time, as we spend time in relationship with each other, as we spend time pursuing Christ together, those people who are not our type of person suddenly start to become someone very worthwhile to us, someone worthy of our affection, someone who we actually start to kind of like. And it's crazy that that can happen. But what that means, and it's beautiful, is that we are beginning to move beyond our own idiosyncrasies to love people and to accept people who are not actually like us, who are a different flavor than what we ordinarily prefer. That's why C.S. Lewis says that dogs and cats should be raised together. They should be brought up together. Because you see that they have this natural animosity toward each other, but if you've ever had a cat and a dog that were raised in the same home, they figure it out, don't they? They learn how to get along. So the Christian community, like a family, is not selective. It's also not private. It's non-private. And, and what I mean by that is, is this. Our speaker at the men's breakfast last weekend, he pointed out that the only prerequisite for being part of Christian community is admitting that you're a sinner in need of grace. 
It's like when you come to the door, instead of showing your Costco membership card or something like that, you say, I'm going to confess to you my sins. That's why I'm here. I'm a sinner in, in need of grace. And so what brings us together is not how good we are, how put together we are, what kind of cars we drive, how we dressed this morning, but that Christ saved us when we were helpless and hopeless and actually in rebellion against him. That's what brings us together. And Christian community, it starts with this public acknowledgement of our weakness. And, and healthy community continues actually to be not really private anymore as we're invested in each other's lives. Real community is vulnerable. Real community is, is intimate and doesn't allow us the option to just keep other people at bay all the time. Does that mean you have no privacy of any kind? That's not, not exactly what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this, that in Christian community, like a family, a lot of that, that privacy notion evaporates pretty quickly because we are to seek prayer for our needs. We are to confess our sins to one another. We're to live close enough to each other to actually be truly known. And, and so I said this a few weeks ago, but I'll say it again. Your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it was never intended to be private. I grew up in a room with three brothers, four of us in bunk beds, did anyone else experience that growing up in this room? Just my brothers? Okay. <laughs> a couple over here. What you learn really quickly when you're sharing a, a room with three other people is that there is very little to no privacy, right? And you can just imagine what it's like, I, I would say. And um, it, it, it kind of takes away any ability for you to hide or to get away with things or to do anything that... that would be potentially exposed. And the truth is, this is actually how God designed us to live, with no place for hiding. God designed us to live this way for Adam and Eve prior to their rebellion in Eden. And far too often, we believe this lie that it is better to remain in hiding than to live openly and honestly. Have you ever believed that, that lie? Like, I'll actually be better off if I keep this secret. And it's not true. And living in Christian community, like living in a family that is intimate and vulnerable, it exposes that lie. And deep down, we know it's a lie. We know that we are healthiest when we are living in the light, exposing the deeds of darkness rather than obscuring them. No. I wonder this morning how many of your biggest mistakes in life would have never happened had you not been isolated or alone. I want you to think about that. And so Christian community, what it does is it, it erodes this notion that we are better off in privacy. It, it, it erodes privacy as an ideal, and we are one with other believers, and therefore we become each other's personal concern. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So like a family, Christian community, it's not private, it's not selective, it's intimate, it's vulnerable. And when we reflect on those characteristics, there's a lot of, of good about that. There's a lot of beauty in it because it takes us back to the Garden of Eden in a sense, a place in which Adam and Eve could be naked and what? Unashamed. Unashamed. Naked and unashamed, without fear. But when sin enters into the equation in the garden, that shalom, that peace is vandalized. And vulnerability then becomes liability. Life becomes unsafe. And then we begin to, what we see in Scripture, is, is 
betray one another, harm one another, abuse one another, distrust one another, and hold one another at a distance. This is the environment we're in now. And yet in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this environment we live in, God still calls us to this type of intimate community, to this type of unity. Christian community, what it is, being part of a church, is our collective embrace of God's good creational intent, the way he designed us to be while still recognizing that we live in a context of brokenness. Did you turn to, to Romans chapter 12? If you, if you move to verse 9, we're going to see Paul basically suddenly taken aside in his letter to the Romans and, and describe how to live within Christian community. And he's just going to throw out a bunch of phrases, rapid fire, and we're going to pick up a few of these. But as I read, starting in verse 9, I want you to notice how often this instruction assumes relational tension within the church. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Notice this, genuine love involves truth. Acknowledging what is evil and what is good. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It means even pray blessing upon those people that persecute you. It's, it's wild. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now here, listen to this. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there's a lot there. We could preach sermons on, on pretty much every verse in there, but what each of these verses, a few of these verses that I, I honed in on, living in harmony with one another, seeking as much as it depends on you to live at peace with one another, they assume that within Christian community, there is going to be conflict. And we've talked about kitchen table relationships. That's what we want you to have in, in your small group environments here in the, truth, in the church. But the truth is, if you have those kinds of relationships, you will be close enough to other people for them to see your flaws and for you to see theirs. And the result is that we will experience relational tension within the church. We will have conflict with others, even within the Christian community. And so the question facing us this morning is how can we glorify God even in that conflict? How can we, we have difficult conversations and engage with other people within the body in a way that, that brings about more harmony, more unity, rather than more division and disruption. Inevitably, in our community, there's going to be breakdown in our relationships. And so what I ask you to consider is, do you have relationships within the body of Christ where there is some need for some, some minor maintenance work to be done? And are there relationships that you have within the body of Christ in which there are major repairs that need to be done? And so for this week and next week, we're going to be addressing how we deal with both that, that maintenance and those major repairs, and how we don't let those maintenance issues in relationships become things that result in major repairs needing to happen. Someone that I love uh, once neglected to put oil in her car, their car, for 
basically uh, months and months and months and months. And what happens is an engine dies when that happens, right? If we neglect the, the routine maintenance of engaging in difficult conversations and dealing with issues within the body of Christ, especially sin issues, if we neglect that for too long out of a sense of self-preservation and not wanting to, to say the difficult thing, the end result will be these major repairs that are much, much more expensive, costly, and difficult to deal with. God has called us to peace in the Christian family. He has called us to harmony, but that does not happen by accident. We have to work for it. And so, so maybe God will call someone to mind right now. I think what we often think is that we think that peace in community is just an absence of confrontation. But when we look at the instructions of Scripture, it says that we're to confront sin. We're to pursue reconciliation. We're to rebuke and reprove one another, admonish one another, forgive one another. And it becomes clear within community that, that peace doesn't happen passively. You might, you might write that down. Peace doesn't happen passively. Unity is worth fighting for. Think about that. And while these, these verses in Romans assume conflict, they also admonish us to seek peace and pursue it, to pursue harmony within the family of believers. So who came to mind? I wonder what the Lord would have you do about that. And, and while this sermon is about conflict, what this is primarily about is restoring right relationship through truth and love. Relationship built on truth and love. So we're not fighting against someone. We're fighting for something. God glorifying relationship built on truth and love. Some of you are, are really good at telling the truth. Who are my truth tellers in the room? Any truth tellers out there? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're really good at, at telling the truth and, and saying those difficult things difficult things. But how many of you know that even true words have the capacity to destroy and to break down and, and to bring down? And so often we justify saying something that is unhelpful, unkind, and destructive because, well, it's true. Just because something is true does not mean that now is the time or place to say it, not necessarily. In the absence of love, even true words have the capacity to destroy a relationship. Where, where are my love people at? Yeah, we've got some love people around the room. Hopefully you all have a measure of both of these, right? Truth and love, I would hope. But there are, are some who uh, you're all about love. You're all about maintaining relationships that, listen to this, that feel okay. Relationships that, that, that feel okay. And as a result, you lack the courage, potentially, if you raise your hand, this isn't necessarily you, but you lack the courage to speak up and to correct your loved ones when they wander. And the result is that the people in your life might feel accepted by you, they might feel welcomed by you, they might feel loved by you. Really, you're loving yourself because you haven't had the courage to speak up and to correct the course of people who you know are heading into destructive patterns. You just don't want to have those conversations. They're too difficult, they're too costly, and, and, and so you'll just continue to be loving without truth. One of our, our elders recently said this. He said, he's probably quoting someone else. He said that, that love without truth is just sentimentality and truth without love is violent. But relationships that are built on both truth and love can be far richer, stronger, deeper than what you're experiencing right now. That, that's what Christ 
calls us to in community. Jesus summarizes conflict this way. He, he, he doesn't preach these lengthy sermons on it the way that I am right now. He just says this. This is Luke 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to who? Yourselves. Not them over there, not him, her, no, yourselves. And then he says this, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Godly relationships require both truth and love. And as a result, Christian conflict requires both confrontation, sometimes reproof, rebuke, and forgiveness. We'll talk much more in depth about forgiveness next week. But reproof and rebuke. I don't know why that word was so hard to say. <laughs> it's not a word that we use a lot, is it? Somewhere along the way, that, that word rebuke got a bad reputation, probably from someone who was rebuked. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we don't like it. It's difficult, right? But yet scripture calls us to this. And it assumes in it that this is for our good. And this is for actually the upbuilding of our community and our relationships. So we'll set aside forgiveness for the moment, though you can't really do that. We'll set it aside for a moment and talk about it more in depth next week. But this week, what I want to do is just conclude with uh, some practical instructions on how to confront a brother or sister in Christ in truth and love. And this is something I've taught on in the past, but, but the point of this is for God-glorifying relationships. Sometimes we are going to need to have that difficult conversation. And I'm going to give you some, some, some statements, some wisdom, hopefully for how to do that, how to engage well and when for the glory of God and the good of the family. And I, I made an acronym for you this morning. So if you're acronym people, the acronym is this. It's FIGHT, F-I-G-H-T, FIGHT. And, and you might write these down. This is what we do. If you wonder what people do in seminary, they study the ancient languages, they study the Bible and theology, and they also study how to make acronyms for sermons. So here we go. Fight. Number one, this one is the biggest stretch, so just bear with me. Fortitude. Fortitude. I'll explain what that means. We in the family of God need to choose family over fear. And what fortitude is, is courage. And one of the primary reasons we don't engage in relationships, we don't have difficult conversations, we don't confront sin issues in our brothers and sisters, is because we are afraid. It terrifies us. And, and confrontation can be extremely anxiety-inducing. So our first principle is this. Be courageous. For the sake of the people you love, be courageous. Be courageous enough to get through that relational discomfort to say what needs to be said in truth and love. To speak the truth in love requires that we abandon our comfort for the sake of our brother or sister. You're going to need to be brave. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. As we grow in love for one another, we will be less and less afraid to discuss difficult things. It says, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I can think of so many examples in Scripture of this as, as this plays out. I think of, of Abigail going to David. David is on this rampage where he's about to go kill this fool Nabal who has insulted him. He's not yet king. And Abigail, this beautiful and wise woman, goes and appeals to David, tells him the truth, speaks into his life, not what he is now, but what God intends for him to be and stops him from making a terrible mistake. Do you think that took courage? Absolutely. I think of, of Nathan going to David. David gets in trouble a lot, apparently. Nathan the prophet going to David and, and confronting him in his sin and calling him out and saying after, after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite, he comes to him and he says, you are that man. 
and confronts him in his sin and calls him to repentance. I think of, of Paul going to Peter. We remember that Peter is getting cozy again with just hanging out with Jewish Christians and is abandoning other people. He's, he's displaying his biases and his bigotry within his community. And Paul comes along and calls him out. He rebukes him. He reproves him for who's good? Peter's good. And for the good of this Christian community, do you think that took courage? I mean, we've seen time and time again how Paul was courageous, where he said what was true and loving because it was the right thing to do. It's going to take courage, fortitude. We need to choose our family over our fears. Matthew 18, it gives us this, this encouragement. It's in the context of, of rebuking a brother in sin. It's described our worst fear. It says that, and if he refuses to listen, that's what we fear will happen. He goes on to say that if we trust him in this process of pursuing repentance and reconciliation, that he is with us. Jesus is with us in the midst. We often say this in the context of small groups. Wherever two or three are gathered, he is there in the midst, right? That's what we say a lot, and that's true. But if you look at Matthew 18, what he's actually talking about is he's describing the fear-provoking context of sin and reconciliation, rebuke, and restoration. And he says that as you enter into this process, though it may fill you with anxiety and fill you with fear, that he is with you in the midst. He goes with you into those conflicts. That's an awesome promise. You are not alone. So F, fortitude. Choose family over fear. I, investment. Confront where you are relationally invested. Rebuke, reprove where you are relationally invested. Jesus says we are to rebuke when who sins against us? Our what? Brother. Our brother. That means our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's each other. That's people like the ones sitting around you in this room. So we don't go around rebuking strangers, right? You don't go up to that person in the grocery store and, and yell at them and, and pull their mask up over their nose or whatever it is, you know, whatever the, the, the reproof is in our current context. You don't tell people to knock it off all the time. No, this type of interaction, this type of confrontation is for sin and rebuke only within a community in which you are relationally invested, brother to brother, sister to sister. That makes sense, right? Does that make sense to us? Yeah, but I think on far too many occasions, I've seen individuals speak truth into people's lives, quote unquote, speak truth into people's lives where they barely know them, where they've made no relational investment, where they don't have that capital invested in that relationship in order to make that kind of withdrawal. And so I want you to think about our relationships within community as like a bank account. If you have made no deposits in that bank account and you go to make a big emotional withdrawal, you are going to incur a debt. You're not going to make that person better. You are not going to build up that relationship. But if we are invested in each other's lives, if I know that you love me, then your rebuke will be welcome. Proverbs says that, that wounds from a friend are faithful. Wounds from a friend are faithful. Have you made those relational deposits within the bank. If you haven't made the investment, your confrontation will only incur a debt. So, so we rebuke only where we've made those investments, where we've earned the right to be heard. G, grace. Grace. When we confront, 
We do so for restoration, not retribution. Galatians 6.1 says that, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. A loving rebuke of a brother or sister in Christ is for their construction, not their destruction. It is for their edification, their building up, not their tearing down. So if you're if your purpose is to make yourself look good, if your purpose is to prove that you're morally superior or to win an argument or to point out the specks in other people's eyes while you have a log in your own to make the other person feel small, that is not coming from a place of love. That comes from a place of pride. And a loving confrontation is full of grace, full of grace and seeks to restore and instruct a fellow believer, not destruct, building up, not breaking down. That means we are to be gracious in conflict. And if you're not prepared to be gracious, if you sense in yourself that you want to, to have it out with someone or have that talk with someone and you're just stewing in bitterness and replaying the tapes over and over in your head, you need to stop and pause. You, you, you may need to forgive before you engage. And I would say you probably do. Because if you're not prepared to enter into those conversations with grace, it is not going to go the way that the Lord intends for it to go. That also means that when we go into gracious conflict, we're going to need to demonstrate discretion. Matthew 18, 15, it says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So we handle these issues face-to-face, one-on-one, and we choose to be awkward for the sake of being open. We choose to, to not send a text or send an email. We talk face-to-face, one-on-one. That means we also refuse to involve other people behind the scenes. We don't gossip. We don't, don't mask our issues as prayer requests. Well, we, we don't talk about this at small group. And we don't go about warning everyone else about these individuals that we just need to talk to. In family, we deal with these issues with discretion and with grace. Proverbs 26, 26 20 says this, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. H, humility. Resist superiority. Who here has ever been in an argument? Anyone? Yeah? Who here has ever been the one that's right in that argument? Yes, every time. That's why we have arguments is because we are right. But Proverbs 13, 10 says this, when there is strife, contention, there is pride. Where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 16, 2 says this, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the heart. So check your motives. Check your motives, check your your heart. Are you able to enter into these kinds of conflicts with humility from a place of, of being humble before the Lord, or are you coming from a place of pride? T, timing. Pick your battles. We enter into this kind of process of rebuke and reproof every time we are offended. The answer is no. Not always. Not always. I've already called you to courage. You know there are some things you need to deal with. But this says, in this verse, it says, when your brother annoys you, rebuke him. Right? Nope. No. When your brother inconveniences you. No. When your brother offends you. No. When your brother sins. When your brother sins, so so recognize that this is a process that's detailed for us for sinful actions and behaviors, not quirks that bother you. 
And this is something that would be good to apply even to our parenting if you have children, to, to realize that discipline is for disobedience. It is not for mistakes. It's not for quirks. So we don't rebuke our brothers and sisters for mistakes. We, we might be annoyed by those things, but that's where we have work to do in order to, to grasp the grace that we've been shown by the Lord. We enter into this for the sake of our brother and sister who is, is spiraling in sinful behavior, where we see a, a pattern of destruction in their lives, where we cannot overlook this anymore. And, and so what will happen in our lives as we mature in our faith in Christ is that we will grow in grace for other people as we grow in our grasp of his grace for us. When we realize what he's done for us, that he has paid it all for us, it, it, will, it will remind us to tell ourselves a different story about the people that bother us in our lives. To tell a story of grace on their behalf and to enter into uh, these kinds of discussions and difficult conversations full of grace and care. And this won't be every time that we do this. There are occasions that are definite occasions for rebuke, and there are, are times that are, are not occasions for rebuke where we are better off overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19, 11 indicates that love and good sense cause us to overlook many offenses. First Peter 4, 8 says that love covers over a multitude of wrongdoing. So this means that within the family, we are not to be easily offended. We are not to mean offenses, and we are not to take offenses from one another. We are to grow in maturity and to have thicker skin for the sake of deeper relationship with each other. But when do we do this? When do we rebuke? When do we confront? We confront when the sin is serious enough to break relationship or make it cold. Matthew 18, 15 indicates that the purpose of rebuke is to win ourselves a brother. So if we're seeking to restore what is breaking apart, that is a definite occasion for this type of interaction. Secondly, we rebuke when we witness a pattern of sinful behavior that our brother or sister is stuck in. Galatians 6.1 says this, that we who are spiritual should restore the one caught in sin. Restoration, not retribution, not for our own sake. Thirdly, we rebuke when a brother or sister in Christ invites us to. Do you have anyone in your life that you've invited to reprove you, to call you out? A sign of maturity is to invite wise voices into your life and to say, hey, if you see me going off track, I want you to tell me. Do you have anyone in your life like that? A church is a place where we need to develop those kinds of relationships, and we can develop those kinds of relationships where we have trusted people in our life who are close enough to see our flaws and, and, and will call us out when necessary in grace, in love, for our restoration, not for retribution. Bonus. Bonus point here. It's your move. Whether you are the offended or the offender, it is your move next. Matthew 5.23 says this. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 18.15 says, If your brother or fellow believer sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In other words, if you are the one that has caused the offense, it is your responsibility to go and make it right. And if you are the one that has been offended by the sin of another, it is your responsibility to go and make it right. It is your move. As, as you mature in your relationship with Jesus, you will, you will see more and more that he would call you to be the one that moves first, that takes the initiative. It is your move. And so what this means is that as we follow Jesus, we pay attention to ourselves 
And we pursue reconciliation both when we've been wronged and when we are wrong, we repent. And when necessary, we rebuke. We need to conclude here. There's more to say. And so I would just invite you to come back next week. As we talk about all the other variables here, some of you are saying, Mark, but you don't know what he's done. Or you're saying, Mark, but you didn't talk at all about forgiveness. You're right. You might say, Mark, what about this scenario of abuse or neglect or whatever it is? All these different scenarios. And I can tell you, if I didn't address it this morning, I will address it next week. And if I don't, you can rebuke me, okay? We will deal with it, all right? But let's pray. Let's go before the Lord right now and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word reproves us. That as we read your word, it challenges us. It convicts us. It, it, it requires that we do not stay the same way we are today. Lord, I pray that, that as we consider this this morning, that we would consider how you would have us change and, and what conversations you would have us enter into full of grace for the sake of restoration. God, let us not be fearful, but let us be full of courage to do the difficult thing so that these the seeds of bitterness and division don't well up in us. Lord, I pray that your church would be an example to the, to the world of what it means for diversity to dwell in unity, for us to be different. And Lord, we do intercede uh, for Ukraine once again. We intercede uh, for those who are in harm's way, for those who are dealing with, with the terrible repercussions of sin. Lord, we pray you would intervene. We pray that you would have mercy. We need you, Lord, desperately. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.